Jeremy, your community meditation. Oh, he's not here. His community meditation was very good, I thought. And, and hopefully his volleyball tomorrow night is just as good. And if you're curious to see if that happens, you can be here at 630 and you can watch Jeremy play volleyball and you can be the judge. Uh, I would argue that he and Willie are actually uh, two of our most improved players uh, this year. Uh, Jeremy has been very adequate on the volleyball court. So... Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you joining us here on Sunday morning. In Joshua chapter 5, God's chosen people, Israel, turn to a new page in their nation's history. A new generation of Israelite men are circumcised in obedience to God's law. They celebrate the Passover meal for the first time this side of the Jordan River. And perhaps most tellingly, manna, the bread from heaven that God has been giving them for decades, stops falling. And they begin to eat the fruit of the promised land instead. So it truly is a new day for Abraham's descendants. Slavery in Egypt is a thing of the past. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness. Moses is dead. And the Jordan River is in the rearview mirror. So I guess the big question now is, what happens now? What do we do now? We get a preview in Joshua 5, starting in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So what comes next for Israel? One word. War. The passage we just read is certainly interesting. This commander of the Lord's army is clearly no ordinary man. He's something more than an angel. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have accepted Joshua's worship. Some wonder if this man is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. But we do note that the last time someone was asked to take off their sandals because they stood on holy ground, it was when Moses spoke with God himself in the burning bush. But while it's fun to wonder about who this commander of the Lord's army may be, the main takeaway is this. It's time for Israel to fight. Why else would this mysterious man appear with his sword drawn? So what comes next for God's people? War. The remainder of the book of Joshua is often referred to as the conquest of the promised land. Now, the kings in the promised land know this is coming. Joshua chapter five, verse one, we read. 
As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Just as Rahab had heard about the God of Israel. We read about that a few weeks ago. As she heard who he is and all that he had done, especially to those who tried to stand in his way, the kings of the promised land had heard about him as well. The question is, how will they respond? In Joshua 6, the famous story of Jericho that we may have read in Sunday school at some point in our lives answers that question for us. So go ahead and open up to Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to follow along as we go. Use our Bibles. If you didn't bring one, take it home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this building. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this time every week. Uh, As Jeremy said in his meditation, there may be weeks where we spend very little time thinking about you. We spend very little time remembering you, but this time is set apart specifically for you. And so I pray that our worship right now would be honoring to you and that our worship right now in this place would carry over through the rest of the week when we're in other places and that worshiping here together would encourage us and spur us on to continue worshiping you even when we're not here, even when we're not together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your goodness and your power, your grace and your righteousness, all of which we see in today's passage. Lord, thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We glorify you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in Joshua 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward. 
March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. By ancient standards, Jericho was a highly desirable city. It was strategically located near the Jordan River, functioning as a sort of border outpost. The land was fertile and well watered. Sometimes referred to as the city of palms, Jericho stood like an oasis in the middle of a desert. Now, it wasn't large in modern terms. It likely only had about 3,000 residents at that time and measured only about 2,000 feet around. But if Israel wants to conquer the promised land, they have to go through Jericho first. And that includes its walls. But sure enough, the Israelites find Jericho locked down. Those walls are tall. The gates are shut. No one enters and no one leaves. Now, as we just saw at the beginning of chapter 5, Jericho's king had heard that the Israelites were coming. He had heard about their God's track record. And Jericho's king has decided that he wants nothing to do with them. So even though they have no shot against the God who trounced the Egyptians, parted the Red Sea, and stopped the waters of the Jordan River just as an encore, the city of Jericho doubles down. Their stubborn refusal to yield is really a display of opposition and rebellion. So God gives Joshua the plan. All the men of war will march around the city one time per day for six days. The priests will join them blowing trumpets. And what do you know? The Ark of the Covenant will be there too. We saw last week how God's presence in the form of the Ark of the Covenant led the people across the Jordan. And here it will play a key role in helping the Israelites overcome this obstacle. And then on the seventh day, there will be seven marches. The priests will blow the trumpets again, the people will shout, and the walls will fall. The locked down, fortified city of Jericho will simply, miraculously, implode. And the Israelites will conquer. Now take a moment and put yourself in the Israelite sandals. I mean, come on. Can this really work? You don't have to be a brilliant military strategist to see how this plan would appear to be an absolute joke. Marching? Trumpets? A box? Yelling? Is that really enough to take down Jericho? Will the walls really just collapse? When you think about it that way, it becomes apparent that this plan of God's is a test of faith for the Israelites. It's a test of obedience. It's a test of endurance. Not just doing it once, but six times. 
Six days. Day seven. And if God just led them over the Jordan River with no boats, why can't he lead them to victory and battle with no weapons? Now put yourself in the sandals of the king of Jericho. You've heard the stories. You see the crowd getting closer to your doorstep. And when they arrive, you watch as they march around your city for six days, blowing trumpets, which was the universal announcement of attack in the ancient world. You have an entire city in your care. As the king, you represent the people as a whole. You're responsible for their well-being. And yet you refuse to surrender. You refuse to walk out, throw yourself at Joshua's feet, and beg for mercy from Israel's God. You're hard-hearted. You're prideful. And you're about to get yourself and your people killed. But finally, put yourself in Rahab's sandals. Remember her? Back in chapter 2, the prostitute living in Jericho's walls welcomed the Israelite spies into her home and hid them from their enemies. She too had heard of God's accomplishments and begged for mercy from him. Rahab held up her end of the deal. She still has that cord hanging in her window from when they shook on it. But will Israel and their God hold up their end? Will they keep their word and deal kindly with her? The ancient world could be a rough place. And these sorts of informal commitments weren't always kept. So when Jericho falls, will God be gracious to her? Or will God view her as just another Canaanite who deserves judgment, despite the courageous risk that she took and the humble pleas that she made? Rahab's life and the lives of her family are in God's hands. Jump ahead to verse 15. We find ourselves in day 7, Joshua chapter 6. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who live with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted 
and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So the Israelites passed the test. They believe God's power. They obey God's words. They stick with God's plan for all seven days and they conquer as God promised. Jericho's walls fall flat. The city is burned. Its wealth is plundered. And Rahab and her family are spared. And based on the words of verse 25 and the words of Hebrews 11.31... This prostitute from Jericho goes down as an unlikely hero among God's people. In other words, God keeps his word to all involved. The Israelites, the king of Jericho, and Rahab. His conquest of the promised land is off to a roaring start. However, it won't be all smooth sailing from here. Those warnings that God issued about not keeping Jericho's treasures for yourself. We'll see why that warning was issued next week and the deadly consequences of failing to heed it. And while Jericho was a resounding victory for God's people as they enter the promised land, not every battle will be quite so one-sided. But for now, know this. God is keeping his word to lead his people into his promised land. And trying to stand in his way is a fool's errand. But what do we learn from this rousing, amazing, famous, but also disturbing biblical story? 
Well, lesson number one is that God gets the victory. God gets the victory. Once again, it's God's presence. Seen in that vision of the commander of the Lord's army and the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence is pivotal to Israel's success. Now give them credit. Joshua and the Israelites were strong and courageous. More importantly, they were faithful and obedient. But at the end of the day, they can't take the credit for Jericho's walls falling. Only God can. He does the heavy lifting. And in a sense, his people are simply the beneficiaries of his power and his grace. That simple point, God gets the victory, is good for believers like us to remember as well. Our victory over our greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan, is accomplished by God. Yes, of course, we're called to be faithful and obedient in response. That's all true. But ultimately, God does the heavy lifting of saving sinners like us. We, too, are beneficiaries of his power and his grace. Lesson number two could be that God sometimes uses unexpected means to accomplish his will. As we said, many people would have looked at Israel's plan. Marching. Trumpets, a box, yelling. That's how you're going to take down Jericho. Many people would look at that and say they were fools. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the cross is foolishness to those who believe in it. You mean to tell me that I'm supposed to believe in a Jewish guy who got on the wrong side of the religious authorities, ended up going to a cross with all of the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual stigma of dying on a cross. I'm supposed to look at him, believe in him, and worship him, follow and obey him, and trust that he's going to give me eternal life through his body and his blood. That seems like a pretty foolish plan. But that's the only plan that works. It's the plan that God used. It might look insane to those around us. It might look like foolishness to those around us. But that is the means by which God has saved us. And then lesson number three. There are two kinds of fear of God in this story. In the case of Rahab, fear leads to faith and salvation. The one who hears of God's power, fears him, and humbly petitions him for mercy. Whether that person is a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, Girl Scout or prostitute, the one who fears God and seeks his mercy is saved. But in the case of Jericho, Fear leads to destruction and death. The one who hears of God's power 
fears him, but then doubles down in opposition, foolishly thinking that walls and gates will somehow save them from judgment? The one who fears God and only further solidifies their opposition to him is destroyed. So may we pray for a healthy fear of God. The kind that fosters faith and salvation. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, may we recognize that the God we're called to fear is also the God who loves us. The God who has the power to cast us into hell is also the God who knows how many hairs are on our heads and cares for us more than the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. And may we avoid an unhealthy fear of God, the kind that leads to bitterness, rejection, and death. James tells us that in a twisted, corrupted kind of way, even the demons fear God. But that kind of fear won't save them. That kind of fear doesn't lead to love. It only leads to hate. So may we pray for an appropriate fear of the God who loves us. Now, there's one more point to consider, and it's one that isn't easy to bring up, but you can't honestly and seriously study the book of Joshua and not grapple with it. That's the violence of passages like the one that we read today and several others in the book. We may find verses 17 and 21 particularly disturbing, and understandably so. All within the city devoted to destruction? Men and women, young and old, killed with the edge of the sword in Jericho. What in the world do we do with that as believers? Well, students of scripture have wrestled with these stories for a long time, and a few nuances have been offered that might be helpful. For example, there are theories that Jericho mainly served as a military fort and not a city full of civilians. It's also worth remembering that one word often thrown around concerning these passages, the word genocide, isn't accurate. If God had commanded the Israelites to commit genocide, then Rahab wouldn't be alive. On top of that, as we mentioned earlier, it's worth noting that seven straight days of battle trumpets gave Jericho plenty of time to surrender if they chose to. And God's law has rules of engagement about how to deal justly with enemies who plead for mercy. But Jericho didn't surrender. And finally, we can recognize that at one time in history, God in his wisdom saw fit to accomplish his will through nation building, which inevitably involves war. And we can be thankful that we live in a period of history when God primarily accomplishes his will through the church. Now, those observations may be helpful. Perhaps this wasn't the gruesome Game of Thrones style brutality that we sometimes picture. But at the end of the day, 
Here's the best, but also most challenging answer to this issue. God is God, and we are not. We don't judge him. He judges us. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. We don't get to sit here and issue letter grades about whether or not what he does is good and right. If we believe that God is perfectly and completely good and righteous in and of himself, then nothing he does is not good and not right. Now, is that an easy answer? Heck no. But is it the biblical answer? Yeah, I think it is. As we read at the end of the book of Job, God does not owe us an explanation for why he does things the way he does them. There's a place for wrestling with these sorts of biblical issues. I'm not saying that we can't genuinely and honestly engage and struggle with these difficult passages. But at the end of the day, there comes a point where we simply have to acknowledge that he is the potter. We are the clay. And we're in no position to accuse him of wrong. And one final point along those same lines. Don't fall into the temptation of discarding these parts of the Bible as a defective remnant of the mean, nasty, Old Testament God who later evolved thanks to time and therapy and got a little bit nicer when we reached the New Testament. That idea has been considered heresy by Christians for 1,800 years. Jesus warns us in Luke 13, repent or perish. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus speaks of hell as a place of utter darkness marked by weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the book of Revelation, we see images of Jesus coming in judgment at the sound of trumpets, waging war against his enemies. Not exactly the meek and mild caricature that we often prefer. So don't fall into the trap of viewing the Old Testament God as defective, mean, and nasty, and the New Testament God as new and improved, cute, and cuddly. The author of Hebrews tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is holy. He doesn't take sin lightly. And if we believe that sin is as bad as the Bible says it is, And that we're all guilty of it. The question is not, why would God do this to these people? The question is, why hasn't God done this to me? That question might just lead you to another violent passage of the Bible. One that ought to outrage us, and yet we're quite comfortable with. It's the one where Jesus is crucified. The city of Jericho would be rebuilt during the time of the wicked king Ahab of Israel. But generations later, Jericho would be, as it was for Rahab in our text this morning, the site of an act of God's grace. 
a wee little man named Zacchaeus. A tax collector would climb a tree in Jericho, hear Jesus' words, repent of his sin, and believe. Zacchaeus feared God. And thanks to Jesus, salvation came to his household, as it did Rahab's so long ago. So may we, too, fear God. May we come out from behind our walls and throw ourselves at his mercy. Knowing that Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross is more than enough to save us from the death and destruction we deserve. And that God is faithful and just to forgive us. And by faith in Jesus, one day, when trumpets sound again, and he returns in power and glory... As king and judge, may we know in that day that he has gotten the victory. And that because he has gotten the victory, the promised land is ours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have to worship you, to be together and to study your word. Thank you for these stories that we get to read, stories that we might not turn to on our own unless prompted by somebody else. Thank you for these stories that we hear about in Sunday school and learn a little something about when we're young or maybe when we're in small group. But Lord, thank you for the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into them. And Lord, thank you even for the difficult parts of these stories, the parts that challenge us and maybe even disturb us at times, the challenge of of wrestling and grappling with these passages. While it's not easy, it's ultimately good for us because it helps us come to a fuller understanding of who you are and what you do. And maybe even raises the question about why you're so good to us when you certainly don't have to be. Lord, be with us in the week ahead as we leave this place, as we take these words that we've talked about and sung and prayed today and chew on them and think about them and remember them. And Lord, use mornings like this Sunday mornings to grow us and shape us for your glory. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. The cross seems like foolishness to so many in the world, but Lord, it's the means by which you save us. So thank you for Jesus. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.